material. Oh, this is the recorder. All right. <laughs> Speak into this one or in this. Well, you'll be fine. <laughs> okay. Uh, thanks for coming out, everybody. Uh, welcome to the third event in the fall 2011 new writing series. Um, we're going to be featuring Helena Duraj. Uh, very excited to have her. Uh, a few words before we get started. Uh, the usual things, turn your cell phones, uh, make them useless. Uh, and some thanks. Uh, thanks to the Cupcake Squared uh, <laughs> promotion, uh, which seems to be supporting a uh, very hard to figure out film. Uh, I hope I can remember the title when we, when we get back. Uh, thanks to the Literature Department, the Dean's Office of Arts and Humanities, to the UCSD MFA program, and to the Sims family for their generous support of our reading series. Thanks also to our RAs, Rachel and Nikolai today, for their assistance. Uh, finally, thanks to the Mandeville Special Collections at the Geisel Library for recording and archiving the new writing, the new writing series readings. These readings are available on podcasts shortly after the event, um, so when you get back home, you can relive it. Uh, Fiction is not imagination, is the quote. It is what anticipates imagination by giving it the form of reality. This is quite opposite to our own natural tendency, which is to anticipate reality by imagining it or to flee from it by idealizing it saith Jean Baudrillard. My fingers are going to get tired from quoting. When I began writing stories, I was terrified of plot. I didn't think I could come up with surprising and convincing plot to quote Alice LaPlante. I wrote only the stories whose event frames had pretty much happened to me or to someone else in real life. And I used that scaffolding to support my fictionalized scenes and characters. This was a crutch. It felt safe because if something surprising or interesting had happened in real life, there was at least a chance that it would be surprising and interesting on the page. As I grew more confident that the language itself would unfurl the story's events, I became more willing to enter stories without knowing what was going to happen, what we're leading up to, how it all end, says Helena Durage whose fiction and nonfiction have appeared in literary journals, including Witness, Third Coast, and Haydn's Ferry Review. Her novel, Fatherland, was a finalist for the 2010 UC Davis Maurice Prize in Fiction. Another work has been recommended for the 2009 Penn O. Henry Award and the 2009 Best American Non-Required Reading Anthology. She received her PhD in English and Creative Writing from the University of Utah and is currently an assistant professor of English at the University of San Diego, where she teaches courses on literature and fiction writing. Really happy to have her in our uh, extended family and to have her here to read to us today. So please, warm welcome for Helena Duraj. Thank you so much for all being here. Um, Thank you to Ben for inviting me and to the UCSD New Writing Series. Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah? Okay. Um, and thank you also to Juan, wherever you are, for helping me find the entrance to this building. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I've never been quoted back at myself. That was really that was really interesting. I was like, oh, that sounds so familiar. Oh, hey, that's me. Oh, cool. I'm going to read a short story called Tenants. My friend Lila lives in my parents' house, in the suicide room, although she does not know that. It is the big, sunny bedroom above the kitchen, where she has hung purple batik across the windows and keeps a lizard named Malcolm in a glass-walled tank filled with driftwood. There are four bedrooms upstairs, but Lila chose this one. It faces east towards the bay and the Oakland Hills and is too bright to sleep in after sunrise, even with the shades pulled down. This, Lila says, is not the problem. Lila is not like my other friends, my scientist friends. She's a massage therapist, a doula apprentice, and a self-proclaimed clairvoyant. She does less massage now that she's apprenticing, and she needs cheap rent. My parents' house has been empty for years. They live across town in a nursing home, but my sisters aren't ready to sell. When my parents actually lived there, when I'd come to visit for my mother's sake, I'd stand in the street for a moment before going in, look up at the white stucco, green trim, two stories, and I'd imagine a giant wrecking ball, wide and silver and glinting, swinging into the side of the house once, twice. Stucco and plaster and splintered wood flying everywhere. Upon impact, my mother would be down the block, dropping a letter in the mailbox. Lila likes the house, and having her there is good for everyone. She gets a deal on the rent, and the house looks lived in. She brings in the mail, mows the lawn every other week, and talks to the plants. And since she's there, I haven't had to go over so often, except for when she asks me to. Lila wants to give me a free massage, as thanks for finding her cheap rent. I don't like massage, at least not from people I know. So she insists on cooking me dinner instead. You won't believe my curry, she says. Just you wait. When I come over, Lila is naked, cooking lentils in my mother's kitchen. <laughs> Non-bread snaps and crackles in the oil of the frying pan. Lila says she believes in nudity the way she believes in democracy. If we all did it, it'd be the norm. <laughs> Something weird happened last night, she says. I notice her breasts, long and droopy for someone in her mid-twenties, but with upturned nipples. I try not to stare. I want to hand her an apron. I don't think anyone has ever been naked in this kitchen. I was lying on my bed, she says, listening to music, and all of a sudden the volume shot up so loud I had to cover my ears and run to the stereo. What were you listening to, I ask. Some people, she says, would say that's a sign of a poltergeist. Old house, funky wiring, I say. Weird, she says, just weird. Until my father got sick and my parents moved to the nursing home, they slept in the dining room, separate beds in front of each of the china cabinets. For 12 years, I slept in the drawer of my mother's trundle bed, pulled out at night, pushed back in the morning. One of my parents elevated on either side. My mother's biggest fear was that she'd roll over in her sleep and crush me. Upstairs, in the four rooms designed for sleeping, we had tenants. The summer I was five, we had Joe the Barber, my mother's name for him because my father's name was also Joe. He cut hair at the Command Performance Salon downtown. His own hair was shoulder length and lustrous and gray and curly, and he had startling light blue eyes. He offered my mother a free haircut not long after he'd moved in. My father cut all of our hair into severe blunt bobs every other month in the middle of the kitchen. 
She accepted Joe the Barber's offer shyly, and when she came back with a soft, buoyant perm, my father took out his shears. My mother wore her bread-baking bandana around her head for the next few months, even when she slept. In the West Rooms, we had a Stanford Law student named Rick and a man from Los Angeles who stayed only one or two nights a week when he had business in San Francisco. In the Northeast corner, we had Mr. King, who was old and small and hunchbacked. He looked like somebody's grandfather, grizzled and gray with sad eyes and hangdog jowls. I think he might have been a janitor. He always said hello to my mother in the yard, but he never looked up, never met her eyes. Once, when my mother heard him coughing for a few days upstairs, she took him soup and fresh bread. After that, he took our broom out of the garage and swept our porch every day when he got home from work. Sometimes he sat in his car for a long time, parked on the street, and mumbled up at the closed sunroof. I was eating peanut butter cookies at the kitchen table when he shot himself with a rifle in the room above our kitchen. Lila calls me at work. I felt something last night, she says. What's his name, Lie? I ask. Shut up. It was a presence. I was lying in bed, shut up, and I felt something fluttering around my ear, like a moth. But I knew it wasn't, and then I knew right away what it was. And, I ask. I told it to go away in a firm voice. I told it to leave me and not come back, and it left. You should get mothballs for the closet, I tell her. There might be some downstairs. Check the armoires in the dining room. Do you know you have a ghost, she says. Your rent is not getting any cheaper, I tell her. We need an exorcism, she says. You said it went away. It'll be back. You should have seen the way Malcolm was trying to climb out of his tank. Call me when the exorcism is over, I say. It's your house, she says. Only you can make him leave. Technically, it's my father's house. Maybe we should bring him down from the nursing home for the day. Maggie, she says. Experiment's running. Gotta go. I tell her. My mother had to unlock Mr. King's door with our landlord key. I remember her whole body shaking. I held onto her knees, peered between her legs. She said, Holy Mary, Mother of God, over and over. Joe, who worked evenings at the salon, stood in the hallway. When my mother opened the door, I saw red splattered wall and then nothing because she'd thrust my face against her pant leg. Joe grabbed her shoulders, turned her away. My father came home from work early, swinging two cans of semi-gloss in pale pistachio. It was what he'd painted all the tenants' rooms. Green didn't show dirt. Last night, I saw him here. Lila stands at the bottom of the staircase, ankle-deep in forest green shag. At the top, like a kid on a porch step, waiting for someone to play with him. I was coming up the stairs, and just for a split second, I saw him. And then he was gone. He's afraid of me. That's why. At the top of the staircase, Lila has arranged things she found downstairs. They need to be organic to the spirit's environment, she says. She has wrapped her dreadlocks in a green silk scarf. I have never seen it before, so either it is new or it is her exorcism scarf or both. At the top step, she has clustered the framed photograph of Pope John Paul II, my mother's green and gold-edged porcelain tea set from the kitchen cupboard, a bar of soap, an acorn from the front lawn, and my father's cordless power drill. I pick up the drill, turn it over in my hands. Vatican II, I ask. She lights candles, one on each step. She has wrapped herself in one of the batiks from her windows. I am surprised she is not naked. At the bottom of the staircase, she grabs my hand and hums for a minute. Maggie, she says, tell him to leave this house to join his spirit friends in his spirit home, 
This is an earth home and no longer his. You should stick to massage, I say, and midwifery. This isn't that different. I tell her, I do science, not ghosts or exorcisms. You'll never be free of him, she says. How can I not be free of something I don't believe in? Silence. Lila stares at me hard. I've known you a long time, but I don't know very much about you, she says. I do know something weird happened in this house, and that is why you are the way you are. You hide behind gels and pipettes and sarcasm and gridline notebooks, and you won't let anyone touch you, not a massage or a hug or... She drops my hand. He's here, she says. Do you see him? Where? There. I say, no, Lila, I don't see anything at all. No ghosts. It's only a partial lie. I don't see the kind of ghosts she's talking about. My mother told me when they first bought the house and she had my sisters, my father slept upstairs and my mother and the girls slept downstairs in the den. He couldn't sleep if the kids were crying. This was before the tenants, but he kept that room for years, the smallest room in the northwest corner. He would lock himself in, turn up his radio. Once, when my sisters were sick and my mother needed to go to the pharmacy, she had to call over a neighbor. My father couldn't hear her over the Bing Crosby. After my father was laid off and they needed the money from that room too, he came downstairs. We were older then and we didn't cry so much. But sometimes in the middle of the night, my mattress dipped under the weight of my mother's foot and I heard the door to the upstairs open, then close. Sometimes I followed her, pressed my ear to the door, and listened to her weeping on the bottom stair. Lila did not grow up like I did. For years, she lived with her mother on a commune near Sebastopol, in fiberglass domes with blue mold on the walls. Every night, a different dome family cooked, and on weekends, someone dug a pit, and they filled a big round cattle trough with water, heated it up, sliced carrots and onions, and jumped in naked. Cannibal pot, they called it. They had a pet chicken named Neki, and when it got sick, they had a meeting and voted to take Neki to the vet, even though it would cost money. Money wasn't something they had a lot of at the domes, according to Lila. There was no lack of fathers, though. None of them were Lila's birth father, who, she'd been told, was a motorcycle mechanic living outside Topeka. All her mother would tell her was that he hadn't been particularly loving, and that was what Lila's mother came to the Russian River for. Lila told me it took years and a school counselor to figure out that some of her adoptive fathers were too loving. She hasn't talked to her mother since she dropped out of high school and moved in with her aunt in Denver. Now Lila lives only two hours away from the domes and knows from her aunt that her mother still lives there, but she has never gone back to visit. Sometimes I want to go in her place. I don't know why. Even after my parents no longer kept tenants, after my sister and I were sent to college and it was paid for, my parents continued to sleep in the dining room, a swinging door from the kitchen, two double French doors out onto the patio, my father's machinist handbooks in one china cabinet, my mother's volumes of stories of the saints in the cabinet that used to hold my stuffed animals. A threadbare imitation oriental carpet lay between the two twin beds, my mother's trundle permanently tucked in. Two armoires in the corner, in the corners, a painting of Jesus above my father's bed, a photograph of the Pope above my mother's. 
Every wall of that room had doors, glass-paned doors on either side, one set to the living room, one set to the den, my sister's bedroom, later mine. Both sets of doors locked, covered in dark red drapes. On the side that led to my bedroom, some of the panes of glass were missing, and with my bed pushed up against it, I could hear my father, just on the other side, snoring as loud as if I were in bed with him. My parents slept in that room for 34 years until my father could no longer remember his name or my mother's or mine, and when he had to go to the nursing home, my mother went with him. At first, she tried to go just for the daytime, and she'd come home at night, but she was scared, alone in that big house. She called me or one of my sisters to come stay with her, and she turned back the covers on my father's empty bed. For almost a year, a few nights a week, I'd sleep in my father's bed while my mother snored lightly across the room. She woke up at 6 o'clock every morning before her alarm. Maggie, she said, time to get up, don't be late. She'd been responsible for getting my father to work on time all those years. She only overslept once that I know of, and it never happened again. More and more, my mother didn't want to leave my father alone at the nursing home for the nights. She started sleeping in a chair next to his bed, and then my sisters got her a cot, and she slept on that. Finally, my sisters got them a double room, and now, although there's nothing physically wrong with my mother, she lives in a nursing home too. When I visit, I must visit both of them. I never stay long. When I leave, I say goodbye to my father, who blinks at me, and I pat my mother on the shoulder. When I was little, she trained me to hug her only when my father wasn't in the room, so he wouldn't get jealous. Now, at the end of my visits, she trails after me into the hallway in her pajamas and slippers and hugs me by the elevator. My sisters talk about renting the whole house out, not just a room upstairs for Lila, but the whole house for a whole family. Eventually, we'll have to either rent or sell to pay for the nursing home. But if we rent, my sisters say, we'll have to change things around, take out the furniture, make the dining room a dining room again. We should do it anyway, they say, for Lila, so she has somewhere to eat, somewhere to invite guests, all alone in that big house, they say. She should have friends over. She eats in the kitchen, I tell my sisters, just like we did. But still, when my sisters propose this, I call Lila. It's been a week since the aborted exorcism, and it's not like her to be sullen. I was worried the ghost got you, I say. Ha, she says. My sisters want to know if you need a dining room. Downstairs, she says. I don't usually eat down there. I eat in my room. The downstairs has a dark energy. Just you and the ghost upstairs, though. He's not harmful, she says. Then why are you trying to get rid of him? Maybe I'm not anymore. Maybe we keep each other company. I met Lila in a laundromat off of Telegraph my senior year of college. She picked up a pair of underwear I'd dropped in transferring a load from washer to dryer, held them out to me, dangling the damp white cotton off her index finger, nails painted bright blue. Boring, she said. I looked at her, then at my underwear, no, she said, in here, no one to talk to. She picked up her purse, a colorful, woven, Guatemalan thing, and took out a deck of tarot cards. I'll give you a reading, she said. Free, I'm practicing. I was supposed to be studying for my genetics midterm, but Lila hopped up on the sorting table, sat down cross-legged, and fanned out the cards. It wasn't the sort of thing I found the least bit interesting. I never even read my horoscope. But when Lila said, choose one, I did, sliding the card out face down as she instructed. And while she arranged other cards around it, began turning them over, I thought, maybe she can tell me who I am. 
She squinted at the cards, referred to her manual, tucked between her thigh and the tabletop. She tapped a finger against her pursed lips, looked up at me occasionally. Finally, she swept the cards with one hand, musted them into a giant pile. You, she said, are someone who needs a someone like me. The day after I call her with my sister's proposal, Lila calls me. Dinner, she says. Apology. I always say, if you got something to say, say it with food. I like your tie, I tell her. I'll wear it just for you, she says. Ha, I say. Ha, ha. When I come into the kitchen, calling Lila's name, she glides out of my parents' bedroom, the door swinging gently behind her. I raise my eyebrows, taking a nap, rehanging the Pope, she says. The kitchen smells of coconut milk and steamed rice. Empty cans and vegetable trimmings coat the counters. On the kitchen table, overturned spice jars are surrounded by little spilled heaps like mine tailings. Malcolm sits in the middle of the floor, motionless until I step over him. He darts under the table. Lila lifts a platter of dishes, high in one hand like a maitre d'. She looks at me and says, let me show you to your table. She pushes through the swinging door and flicks the light switch in my parents' bedroom. The beds are gone. The armoires are gone. My mother's gold-edged tea set has been placed throughout the china cabinets, a cup or two per shelf. The drapes, thick and red and heavy, are gone. The doors are open, all of them, to the living room, the den, the patio. It is dark and cold outside, and a breeze blows in, threatens to extinguish the candles on the card table in the middle of the room. Only the rug remains, the rug and the pope and the painting of Jesus. Lila places the platter on the table, pulls out a folding chair for me. Exorcism too, she says. I sit down, but I do not lift my napkin. I leave my hands, folded in my lap. Where's everything? How'd you get it out of here? She smiles. I got some help. I told you he wasn't harmful. She pauses. I'm sensing things. She lifts her arms, palms upward. The folds of her crocheted purple poncho hang straight down from her arms like vestments. You slept in this room, didn't you? Did my sisters tell you it's not a secret, my mother? You slept in this room until you were 12, in a trundle between your mother and your father, and when your sisters went to college, you moved into the den. I can't deny any of it. I pick up my fork. What happened to you here? What happened in this room? I slept. I sliced open my stuffed animals and tried to sew them back together. I did whatever kids do in their rooms. Except you did it with your parents. I lay down my fork. What are you asking me? What do you want to tell me, she says. In what way is this an apology? She looks at me so hard I want to turn around, look over my shoulder. I see, she says, a woman who can't mention her father without her whole body tensing. I see a woman who wears clothes two sizes too big for her. I see a woman who jumps when I touch her, a woman who hasn't had a substantial relationship since, since forever. I see a woman who sees what's not there, I tell her. Exactly, she says. I've never thrown anything out of passion in my life. But that fork flies out the open patio doors and clatters onto flagstones. And I want more. I want cups, plates, glass, my mother's gold-edged tea set. I want to throw it all. That's a start, Lila says. Why do you want to know what happened? Why do you care? Lila folds her arms across her chest, lifts her chin. All right, I shrug, but you're going to be disappointed. Yes, I slept in here with my parents twice, maybe three times. My father stepped across me to climb in bed with my mother to warm his feet, and then he stepped back across me. I have never seen my parents even kiss. I've never even seen them hug. I would bet my life on their not being sex after me. I wish I could tell you what you want to hear. 
What about upstairs? she asks. Him? Don't you already know? Not him. After. My mother scrubbed the blood all evening. She dipped the hard bristled brush in a bucket of ammonia while my father ate pork chops and sauerkraut at the kitchen table. She came downstairs to make him a cup of tea. He'd never made one for himself. And she turned on the TV for him while he put his feet up on the coffee table. Then she went back upstairs to paint. She painted that same night so the room could be advertised the next day. I didn't have to sleep in the trundle that night because she never came to bed. I crept up the stairs, and at the top I rested my chin on the banister, and on the other side of the wall I heard the slap of the brush against the wall and my mother crying. A strip of light appeared under Joe the barber's door, and then I heard bed springs and floorboards, and I turned and went downstairs. From the darkness at the bottom, I watched him cross the hall, and I heard murmurings and mumblings, and then my mother's voice a little louder, a little firmer, then a shushing noise. Please, I heard her say, don't. And then Joe the barber walked back across the hall, shut the door. His light didn't go off, but I went to bed anyway. I woke up at six o'clock when my mother came downstairs and made my father's breakfast and packed his lunch and went down to the Tribune to put in a new ad. Room for rent, just painted, please inquire. In the afternoon, she painted a second coat, and then you almost couldn't see the stains. I stand above my plate, stare down at Lila, a spoon in my hand. I step around the table, my thigh knocking it forward so Lila's plate jolts toward her. She catches it before it lands on her lap. Then I am outside, on the patio, breathing cold air and looking up at the house, arms wrapped around my sides. Light shines in Lila's windows upstairs. I feel her standing next to me, can hear her breathe. I smell her, patchouli and cooking oil and unwashed hair and beneath it all, ivory soap. She drapes her purple poncho around me without touching me. It settles on my shoulders like dust. When she goes back inside, she closes the glass doors behind her, just shuts them, leaving one slightly open, the lock tab resting against the other door's edge. When she turns in the light of the chandelier to clear the table, I see she hasn't been wearing anything at all under that poncho, not even a bra. I wish my mother had let Joe the barber help her paint that room. I wish she had locked the door behind him, pressed herself against him, and cried into his chest, his shoulders, his long gray hair. I wish she had undressed him or he had undressed her. I wish they'd made love quietly on top of drop cloths among ladders and paint cans and newspapers and wet brushes. I wish for once, just once, my mother had been happy satisfied, had felt something like pleasure, something like love. It is past midnight when I buzz the fourth floor nurse's desk from the sliding glass doors of the main entrance. I lift a hand to wave at the camera and the doors open. Visiting hours have long since ended, but the nurses know me here. They are accustomed to my sisters and me, to our special situation. They are perhaps not as accustomed to seeing me at midnight in a purple poncho, spoon in hand. But at the same time, night nurses see many things, weirder things. I push open the door into my parents' room without a single person stopping me. What I see is what I've never seen before. My parents sleep in two separate hospital beds, yes. But my mother's bed is pushed all the way over to my father's side of the room, snug against his. My father's bed tilts ergonomically so that he almost sits straight up. 
My mother's mattress is horizontal. She sleeps on her side, one arm flung over the railing of my father's bed, her hand in his. The bathroom light is on, a nightlight of sorts, and I step closer. My father opens his eyes, looks at me, blinks, goes back to sleep. I inspect their hands. Both are wrinkled, the skin loose and liver spotted, my father's nails too long, my mother's bitten close. I try to see if my father's hand grips tight or if my mother's is twisted into his in any way, but all I see are the hands of two people sleeping, hands enfolded in one another, relaxed, loose, lightly touching. I pull the plastic chair from a corner of the room and place it at the foot of their beds. I will watch until dawn or sleep, whichever comes first. Thank you so much. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Sure. Yeah. About the containedness of the of mm-hmm. your pieces, do you tend to write more stories? I know you have a novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Story, so yeah. Like, what is your sort of primary mode, or do you not know when you're? Yeah, um, I write mostly short stories, and my novel grew out of this story and a couple other, one which I think some of you might have read for a class maybe. Um, Because I'd been writing around the same material for so long about this family, um, I thought it needed needed a longer and kind of wider treatment, like a a larger arc instead of just these piecemeal stories. so that's that, and, and and knitting those stories together into something longer has been incredibly challenging, because it's not my primary mode. So yes, thank you for your question. Any other questions? Yeah. Um. Well, it's it's a little bit like how Ben described, where um, I'll start with something that has happened. Um, and then I'll kind of spin fictionally out of it. So it's usually either an image or something I've overheard or a memory I have, um, and I'll start to write about it. And then I'll notice um, language kind of taking me different places. Um, for instance, with this story as an example, um, my best friend was living in my parents' house while they were in a nursing home, um, but she isn't this character. It's a composite of a couple different characters. Um, And I found myself, you know, wanting there to be some kind of a pet in the story, like a lizard. Um, And when that name came in, a lizard named Malcolm, I thought, oh, yeah, like I I knew somebody who had a lizard whose name was actually Wizard Malcolm, a lizard named Wizard Malcolm. And it always stuck in my mind, like what a great name for a lizard. Um, And I tried to make it that. I tried to say, oh, and she had a lizard named Wizard Malcolm, and it wasn't working. Like, the rhythm was off. And so often I find that the music of a piece or the language will determine where the events go, what the plot ends up being, which is really different from how I started, where I had all the plot points, um, you know, outlined in my head at least when I first started writing stories. So now it's a much freer and looser and language-based experience. It's usually in my mind, yeah. 
at certain points I'll stop when I have, say, a draft, and I'll read it out loud and I'll listen for things. But I usually have to get quiet enough in my head that I can hear this voice that is both my voice and not my voice, which those of you who write fiction probably experience. It's you if it's not you. You know, it's really weird. Yeah. Thank you for your question. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I have pieces that have been published that I would like to go back and edit. Um, but I don't feel that they're unfinished. I feel like outside of, you know, minor language edits, usually just taking out unnecessary words that now I see like, oh, I totally didn't need that word there, you know. Um, outside of that, those pieces, I think, have gone as far as I could take them. Um, but I'm also, I'm, I keep things pretty close before I'm ready to send them out. And I have pieces I've been working on for way too long that I should probably just cut loose. Um, but I'm terrified of that happening, of seeing something in print that I'm like, oh my God, I hope nobody sees this. I hope nobody puts my name together with that piece. Um, yeah. Any other questions? Yeah, Hannah Joy. Can you, um, I'm teaching a class on sort of practical writing major uh-huh. <laughs> and one of the things um, one of the things that people are looking into as undergrads is applying to programs you uh-huh. went to a PhD program mm-hmm. in writing mm-hmm. which is a relatively new construct mm-hmm. can you talk about what that experience was like um, knowing that some people might be applying for graduate school in writing sure yeah um, it's one of the best things I've ever done I I was in sort of a unique situation because um I was a biology major in my undergrad, um, like my character. And so I didn't take a lot of English classes. I didn't do a lot of reading. I knew I liked writing. And so I did an MFA in creative writing. And while I was doing that MFA, I really felt, um, I felt at a disadvantage because everyone had read so much more than I had. So for me, doing a PhD in creative writing was about catching up on reading and on having more time to write. Um, It was like the best six years of my life. It was so much fun. Um, I would have stayed there forever if they hadn't kicked me out and told me to get a job, which, you know, is great too, um, because I have a great job. But um, it's really pretty amazing. You devote yourself to reading. Um, You take classes, several years of coursework, in which you're writing seminar papers along with the students who are doing PhDs in critical literature, doing critical PhDs. Um, so you're all like exchanging ideas and you're bringing different things to the seminar. You're coming at it from a writer's perspective and a critic's perspective, and it makes for a really interesting conversation. Um, so you do that for a couple years, and then you kind of go off into your cave and you just read intensively 130 books in a year, and it's all you do, and it's so much fun, um, and it's terrifying and fun and everything, and then you take your exams. Um, and then you're off to write your dissertation, which for me was a creative dissertation. Um, and that's, you know, fun and terrifying too. And that's what my novel was that started out as my dissertation. So yeah, I highly encourage it. Grad school. So fun. Other questions? Yeah. Say that again. How do you find ways to like create more fiction elements with realistic portions of your story? Like, how do I 
interweave the, okay. Um, that's a great question. Um, it's a great question because it's hard to answer. <laughs> that's what people usually mean when they say that's a great question. Um, the fictional part usually grows out of the language that's already there. Um, I think it would be really hard to say, okay, now I'm going to come up with the part of this that isn't real. Um, I, I would go crazy. I don't, I'm, not, I'm really not a great inventor. Like when people say, you know, come up with a lie or just make up a story, I freeze. And I go, you got to give me something to work with. You know, like I can't just make it up on the spot. But as long as I have something grounded in reality, that in quote-unquote reality, you know, whatever that means, um, that gives me a window into saying, okay, what if this then? Um, there are, you know, a, a van just pulled up um, while I'm waiting at a bus stop and someone asked me for directions and here's this thing grounded in the physical concrete world and that turns into fiction for me when I say, what if I jumped into that van instead of giving them directions and just said, hey guys, I'm going with you. You know, like suddenly... I see the story spinning, um, but I have to have something to start with. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. I'm interested in uh, a lot of the sort of grounding details that, you know, obviously it's probably a melange of like things that you notice and things mm-hmm. that, that you're creating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'm kind of interested in the process of, of kind of collecting that data mm-hmm. or if, you know, you get to a point in the story where need to make it real again or, you know, mm-hmm. to describe the plate lurching towards the uh-huh. you know, towards uh-huh. Lila. Um, is there, do you collect that kind of stuff? Like those sort of, that data, that like image bank or something, is mm-hmm. that something you kind of keep for yourself or is it just something that when you're working, uh, like when you say, I need a name for a mm-hmm. lizard, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the possibility to yeah. It is a little bit of both. I keep a notebook. I keep a list in my computer of things I notice, images. I'm sure many of you guys do this too. Things you overhear, conversations. Um, and I always think like, oh, this will go in a story. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and sometimes I'm surprised by what I remember in the moment of writing. Like I think, how did I possibly remember that detail from six years ago? I didn't even have to go back in my notebook. Like this moment just suggested itself. So it is, it's sort of an unconscious process and then a conscious kind of cataloging of stuff in the world around me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, totally. I steal everything. I rip everything off. Um, sometimes I tell people and sometimes I don't. Yeah. And sometimes I don't remember that I ripped it off. Sometimes I'll hear something um, and it'll work its way into a story. And I, I did this once and I turned in a story for a workshop and my fellow workshop member came up to me and said, I can't believe you used that story I told you. I said, I'm so sorry. I totally didn't remember you telling it to me. I just thought I knew it. Like it, it had interpolated itself into my memory as something I knew. Um, so I felt really bad and apologized. And he was like, that's okay. You can have it. And I was like, okay, thanks. So it worked out okay, but... I do have to be careful. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. Sure, yeah. You mentioned reading 130 books 
Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, I love Carol Meso. I love, love, love Carol Meso. And she was just here at, UC- at UCSD giving a keynote at the And Now Festival. Um, something about the way she works with form and her blurring between fiction and nonfiction is really provocative to me. I love it. Um, I'm also inspired by sort of more classic, conventional or traditional short story writers like Alice Munro, um, but also people like George Saunders, funny people, Wells Tower, um, people who are kind of playful and, you know, doing interesting things. Yeah. Yeah. Are you ever afraid of being over-inspired by a particular author or a particular book? Um, no, I'm not. Um, I would be super happy if I wrote a story that somebody thought was a George Saunders story. I wouldn't even care that like it wasn't mine. I wouldn't care that they didn't think it was mine. Um, I'm not worried because I don't think it's possible. I think a writer's voice almost always shines through, um, even more so when that writer is trying to write like someone else. I think it, it's just inevitable that it comes out. Um, so I'm not, I'm not worried. I think there's so much you can learn from the practice of imitating and emulating another writer. I'm just diving in and sort of getting swamped by their language, um, that it will affect your own language. Yes. But I think it will actually make your own language in the end, come out more like you, like what you're supposed to sound like. Um, I spent a summer reading MFK Fisher, the really fabulous American food writer, mid-century American food writer, and everything I wrote that summer sounded like me trying to sound like MFK Fisher, Um, and it was horrible. Like, I would never show anyone any of that writing because it was just, like, all about, like, France and food, and, like, there was nothing interesting about it except for me trying to sound like, you know, MFK Fisher. But ever since then, there's been something, like, MFK Fisher-like about my sentences that I love, and I'm glad it's there. Um, so I feel lucky that I discovered her and that she's, like, part of my writing genes. You know, like, she's been spliced in, um, but it's still me. You know, like, I sometimes I wish it weren't still me. Like, I'd love to be M.K. Fisher, but um, it's just a part of it now. Yeah. Great question. Um, That one is actually easy to answer, and it's also a great question. Um, I often feel terrified when I'm writing fiction. Um, This was a white-knuckle story for me because I didn't know where it was going because I had dropped this character, Lila, onto the page, and I didn't know Lila. Um, I, as the writer, didn't know her. Maggie knows her, but I don't. And I'm like, I don't know what Lila is going to do, right? Like, she's going to cook naked in the kitchen. Who knows what she's going to do next? Like, I'm terrified. And she's going to reveal things about Maggie and about me, by extension, as the writer, um, that I'm really scared to find out. And that, to me, is terrifying. When I'm on that path of discovery, it's both totally thrilling. There's nothing like it on Earth. Um, and it's terrifying. 
and several times I stopped when I was writing this, and I said, oh, I'm not, I'm not ready to write this. I should just let this hang out for a while. But I was so drawn to it because it was such a magnetic character for me, Lila. She just like kept pulling me back in and being crazy and um, talking to me, really, which makes me sound crazy. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. Um, right now I'm working on a lot, and I think that's to the detriment of all of them. Um, I tend to be pretty scattered and unfocused, um, and I usually start to make progress in a story when I just decide, okay, this is one I'm going to finish. Um, but it's the fun part of writing for me is the dipping into a story and like playing around for a little while and not doing any of the really hard work, which is thinking about structure and um, development and editing, all that stuff that requires real like focus and attention and making difficult choices. Um, I love the early part of just mucking around and discovering and playing. Um, but once I make myself do that only for one story, um, it usually it, it takes me a, a couple months probably to get to the end of a draft once I've, once I've committed to it. <laughs> this helps. <laughs> there you, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, my stories usually come really pretty easily for me, but like I was saying to Sandra, it's really the longer novel that's been extraordinarily challenging for me. Um, because it does ask for this kind of, first of all, sustained attention, which I don't really have. Um, that's why I like short stories. You're in, you're out, you know. Um, it's that sustained attention. It's thinking about it as a longer work, thinking about it as a structure that people are going to spend a lot of time with. It's, you know, an investment of my time and their time. Um, so I feel kind of responsible that they're... Um, you know, navigating it easily and that it's clear and that it's enjoyable and all this stuff um, in a way that I feel like, you know, in a short story, if they don't like it, then it's, it's really only if, like, you know, half an hour of your time and you're done. Um, so it's that. And it's also that the material of my novel um, is playing much more with fiction and nonfiction. And it's, it's really in some weird ground between memoir and fiction, um, more so than my usual writing. Um, I feel pulled back to reality um, in a way that I haven't quite figured out how to navigate. And I, I feel like I probably need to let that pull go and just let it all go and be fiction, invent more and be more free with it. Um, but something about it, something about those characters keep kind of pulling me back into memory. Um, so that's been extraordinarily, extraordinarily challenging as a project. Yeah. Thank you all for your questions. Thank you, Thank you so much for being here.